0: Hey, I'm Eric Soderborg, and you're listening to the How in the Health podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with today's top healthcare leaders to talk about what's really going on in healthcare and what you can do about it. My guest today is Dr. Eddie Stenium, infectious disease expert at Intermountain Healthcare, and our topic today is COVID 19. Eddie, thanks for joining the podcast How in the Health.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, this is fantastic. We're going to do a little bit of a COVID Mythbusters and then kind of get the latest and greatest on the vaccine that's going on. So I appreciate you joining us and willing to share your knowledge and expertise. Uh, So the first question that I usually start out with is how did you get into healthcare? What's your story?
1: You know, I wish I had this like really inspirational story um, that I could share with you and your listeners. Uh, I don't. (laughs) Um, My parents aren't physicians. Um, My mom's a kindergarten school teacher. My dad worked for nonprofits for his, his entire life, worked for the YMCA um, in Minnesota. And um, I went to college at a University of Wisconsin school and um, really went to play soccer. That was my kind of big focus. Um, I was a c- collegiate athlete and, um, you know, did well in school, really liked the sciences, you know, even coming from high school. And then, you um, it was at a time when physical therapy was really popular and that was like the thing to do. And that kind of had a lot of overlay with um I played hockey and soccer. Um grew up in Minnesota. Everybody plays hockey. Yeah. Um and so it's kind of going down that route. And then um I had an advisor, you know, pull me aside and said, Hey, you know, you're done really well in classes and like what do you want to do in life? I said, I don't know, maybe a physical therapist. And and he said, He's like, You should be a doctor. And I said, OK. Um, and, you know, thought about it for about a week or so and then um, changed my major a little bit and set up kind of a, a rotation or just kind of a shadowing with a physician and um, kind of fell in love with it and just made the decision and went to pre-med. And next thing you know, I'm in med school and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing this. And so um, that was about it.
0: I was gonna say, that's a pretty big decision to make on a whim because your whole next decade is kind of laid out yeah. for you.
1: Right? <laughs> you know, um, it truly was the best decision I've made um, aside from marrying the woman I did. But um, yeah, it was, it's was. it been an incredible um, experience and a career that I don't know what I've done if I, if I didn't
0: do that. So well, that's
1: awesome. in, in right. hindsight, it was just a really good decision made um, pretty quickly.
0: No, that's an awesome story. So you're an infectious disease expert. How would you, I have an eight-year-old and she usually will watch these and she's like, what is that? So how would you explain what you do to an eight-year-old?
1: Yeah, I'm a doctor that takes care of people with germs. Okay. That's, that's probably how I'd explain it as a, to an eight-year-old. Um, I focus you know, on infections and taking care of patients with infections. And um, that's what I've been trained to do. And that's what I do.
0: That's awesome. What's, what's your favorite part about what you do? And then we'll jump into COVID stuff.
1: Um, I mean, this gets a little nerdy. Um, there's two things that I really, really like about what I do. One is that it's constantly changing. Um, I mean, just take a look at the last year, you know, like I would have never, you know, when I was graduating from infectious disease fellowship, you know, have any idea that I'd be helping manage a global pandemic. Um, and so it's just constantly changing, whether it be new viruses, new bacteria, new drug resistance, whatever it might be, it's just constantly changing. And so, um, you just are never, you you can never sit back and kind of just rest on the knowledge that you've gained. You have to constantly be reading and evaluating the literature. Um, and then the second part is that, um, everybody gets infections. So I deal with patients that are you know, on the OBGYN ward, I deal with patients in neurosurgery, I deal with patients on internal medicine and orthopedics. And, you know, infectious disease is one of those things that spans all specialties. Um, and so I get to interact with uh, clinicians, inpatient, outpatient, and across all spectrums. And, um, and to me, that's a lot of fun. And so I think those are the two things that I really enjoy the most.
0: No, that's awesome. That sounds appealing to me as well, rather than kind of being focused in on yeah one area, you can kind of see a lot of things going on, even though you have your specialty that you're, that's you're right. so that's awesome. All right. You ready to jump into COVID let's do it in a crazy year. It's almost like the year anniversary. It's a little bit past the year anniversary when everything shut down, I was on it, a trip to go see a tennis tournament and then that got it to totally me. is.
1: Yeah, yeah. So my son was born, um, March 21st, um, last year, March 21st and, um, that week was when, you know, Rudy Goberic tested positive, school shut down, everybody went home, stay at home orders. My son was born. Um, yeah, the and not to mention that March 18th was our, was the earthquake. Yeah. Um, and so we really have passed probably one of the most stressful weeks um, in Utah, kind of modern day history. And um, yeah,
0: that was a, that was a really big week for for a lot of us in in healthcare, yeah, that is that's crazy. And and one thing, one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you on is uh, COVID has had such a huge impact, obviously. But I feel like it's also kind of been politicized. So you're getting a lot of stuff on both sides to where the average person, like myself, doesn't know what to listen to because you have right. experts on on both sides of an issue that are giving your their expert opinions. And so I'm again, thank you for being here to at least mm-hmm. discuss these and. Help us make sense of all this so we can make the same, especially with the vaccine out. And, and there's a lot of stuff around that that we'll get to. But COVID in general, um, there's certain symptoms that I think a lot of people have heard about. Why Why do these symptoms come about in patients that have COVID, specifically like loss of taste and smell, fatigue? How, how is that virus doing that to the body?
1: You know, I think taking a step back and saying, you know, look at the variation in symptoms that people have. That's what makes this virus probably so challenging. Um, you know, you can have people that are infected with high viral burdens in their upper track and have zero symptoms, none, no symptoms at all. And then you can have people that get infected and are dying on a ventilator and we can't oxygenate them. And you've got everything in between. And because of that, it makes controlling transmission so hard, right? And so if you have infected people that are asymptomatic, walking around our community and engaging in work and school and the community at large, those people are transmitting the infection. If you had an infection that 100% of the time caused symptoms, well, that's a heck of a lot easier to control, right? So because you can identify people that are infected, you can get them isolated, and you can control transmission. This virus is so hard that you can't do that. And that's the whole reason behind our public health orders and mask mandates is to control that transmission for people that are either asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. You know, they're infected, they just haven't developed symptoms yet. Um, And so that myriad of symptoms makes this one of the most challenging kind of situations for our respiratory virus. Um, You know, and it does cause some really fascinating symptoms like this loss of taste or smell, um, which we first came to realize pretty early in the pandemic, in May, June. Um, of that in some cases, in some studies, 50 to 80% of people that got infected couldn't taste or couldn't smell or had a reduced sense of taste or smell. And we're learning kind of the why behind that. And that's coming, you know, that, that research question wasn't on the top of the list of things to investigate, you know, within the NIH. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of hypotheses out there. There's a lot of people studying this now. There's thoughts that the virus can attach to receptors of the neurons in our nose and our mouth that affect taste and smell. There's hypotheses that the inflammation surrounding that area in your nose and mouth could also lead to kind of death of those, of those neurons, which is what control our taste and smell. And so there's a lot of theories in terms of just those two symptoms that you know aren't definitive, um, but are certainly something that are, people are working out. And considering that we just identified this, this virus back in January of last year, the amount of science that has gone in to get to where we are, it's just fascinating. But it also shows that we've got
0: a lot more to go um, and uh, a lot more to kind of unravel. Well, and I think you'll address it later, too, even with vaccines and everything else. It seems like every day a new study, because yeah. they're starting as fast as they can. I mean, every day a new study is coming out with, with certain results. Right. Yeah, so with those symptoms, too, as they come up, it seems like not only is there a wide variety of symptoms or asymptomatic people, but also the length of experiencing those symptoms seems to be different as well. Are you seeing that? Yeah, absolutely. Um
1: You know, we see people that are minimally symptomatic for a day or two and then are totally fine. We see people that get severely ill, get hospitalized, but then recover and are totally fine. But then we also see people that maybe have minimum symptoms and then develop this syndrome called long COVID um, that we're still trying to piece together of what is that and and why do people have these lingering symptoms Um, you know, fatigue, fevers, night sweats, you know, these symptoms that, that last, you know, now for months. And, um, you know, I think there's different kind of grouping of clinical presentations um, of people, some that get acutely ill and don't develop prolonged symptoms, some that are acutely ill then do develop symptoms. And then not to mention these, you know, syndromes of the multi-inflammatory syndrome in children and in adults, and the mechanisms behind that, and so this disease keeps throwing us curveballs in terms of, you know, what it can do, and and um, you know the clinical presentation that it that it offers to us, um, and you know people many times will minimize COVID, like oh, the vast majority of people do fine. Yeah, that's true. But there's also a large group of people that do fine acutely, but develop prolonged symptoms, which impacts work, which impacts quality of health, which impacts everything in their lives. Um, We don't want to minimize that. So um, yeah, the the symptom profile of this infection is just incredible at
0: this point. Yeah. And admittedly, I mean, one being in Utah, I think we're I think it hit here a little bit later, I could be wrong. But in terms of like the highly populated areas of New York and everything else, we're we're a little bit more spread out than there. But I hadn't really known anyone who had severe symptoms for quite a while until fairly recently. And so at that point, my mind, I was like, oh, I don't know anybody that's personally like suffered dramatically until I do. And then it's like, oh, okay, that kind of scares you into reality, I guess. Yeah,
1: for sure. You know, us in healthcare, especially those that work in the hospital, we see this every day. You know, we're seeing this today, you know, that it's not something that's no longer going on, but we see people die from COVID-19, um, and we see people suffer and, you know, for a long time, that wasn't the norm. That wasn't what people saw. People saw the numbers on the TV. They saw news reports from, you know, New York and New Jersey and New Orleans. And they're like, that's not us. Um. And now I'd say the majority of people know somebody or is directly affected by somebody who's had severe disease from this. Um, and that is really sad it's gone that far, but it really makes people change behavior.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So take me through treating those symptoms. So if somebody comes down with COVID and again, loss of taste and smell, I don't know that there's much there, but in terms of the fatigue, or. The other yeah. symptoms that could come up, maybe you could take us through, what would be the best way to alleviate those the best you could. Mm-hmm. So,
1: I mean, I think it should be highlighted that people that are at high risk of having bad outcomes, so older people, people that are immunosuppressed, have underlying medical conditions, those people, if they develop acute COVID-19, they need to be seen by their physician because they could be eligible for a treatment called monoclonal antibodies. And this is a treatment that we give people early in their symptoms when they aren't severely ill, And the whole intent of giving it is to prevent severe disease, is to prevent people from getting hospitalized, prevent people from dying. Um, And what it is, it's an antibody that targets the the vaccine. So this is essentially what we call passive immunization, is that we actually give you the antibody that directly affects um, the virus. And it's only good in people that have mild to moderate disease and are early in the course. But the data that's coming out is remarkable in the fact that it prevents about 80% of hospitalizations if given in the right patient population at the right time. So I think first and foremost if you have mild disease talk to your doctor especially if you're at high risk because you know you may be eligible for one of these therapies and we have these therapies now in Utah we have access to them and they work and they're paid for by the government so it's it's really something it, we really should be you know pushing. The second is you know if you aren't in one of those high risk categories and if you don't qualify for those monoclonal antibodies and Um, you're otherwise healthy, it really is symptomatic therapies only. Um, We've looked at a number of different things in the outpatient and there really hasn't borne out in terms of effective therapy. So it's getting rest, it's using Tylenol or ibuprofen, it's um, those really things that we were taught by our mothers and fathers that help with colds, you know, getting enough sleep and, and it's really symptomatic therapies only. Um, and you know, being in touch with your healthcare provider in case something more severe comes up. Um, but really, it's it's symptomatic therapies, um, just like most respiratory viruses are.
0: Interesting. So, when some, you mentioned high risk and kind of age is a determining factor. There is there an age number that you kind of enter that high risk category?
1: Yeah. So it's you know, it's not yes or no. It's just a cumulative risk. And so we usually use the the target of 50. And so, you know, the higher you get above 50, the more and more risk you have. Um, But that risk profile starts at about age 50. Um, But then obviously the older you get, the higher the risk, the more medical comorbidities you have, the more risk. Um, And so it's really kind of a gradient of risk. Um, We've developed a a risk calculator um, and that's on the Utah department of health website that really tries to, quantify, okay, I'm 60 years old, I have high blood pressure and I have a cancer. You know, what is your risk of going, if you get infected, needing to be hospitalized? So it's really additive. And so it's not risk. Yes or no. It's well, what are your risk factors and how much do they add up in terms of your risk profile? Gotcha. Yeah. And
0: we'll put a link to that in the show notes too. Yeah. Um, Let's go over. So now you, we've talked about symptoms. Let's talk about testing a little bit. So you go in to get tested. Take us through how the testing works, the accuracy of testing, all the way around that. If you,
1: yeah. So um, you know, initially in the pandemic, uh, testing was limited. We didn't have as much testing as we would have liked. That rapidly changed with you know, Intermountain, ARUP, Test Utah all coming online to be able to offer um, tests. And so the mainstay test is what's called a PCR test. It's a test that looks for the RNA of the virus in your nose or in your saliva. And so it's a very sensitive test. So if there is you know, RNA of that virus in your nose or mouth, it'll find it and it'll turn it positive. And um, very good test. We now have platforms that are rapid PCR based assays that can be done in two hours. Um, the traditional test, whether you get it at ARUP or wherever um, within Intermountain is usually a 24 hour turnaround period. So pretty quick test. And very, very sensitive, meaning that if you have that virus in your nose, it'll detect it, okay regardless of high quantity or low quantity. Yeah. So sometimes it's actually too sensitive in the fact that um, you know we'll detect it potentially weeks to months after you've been acutely infected as long as there's still shedding of RNA, you'll find it. The other test is what's called an antigen test. And we're seeing more and more of these being used. And this is a rapid point of care test can be done in 15 minutes. And so you can see these, you know, popping up around town. Um, good test. don't want to, you know, undermine this test at all. But you really have to kind of put it in context when you use this test, because it's not as sensitive, meaning that In people that have disease, that have the infection, it's only positive about 70% of the time. And so if you have somebody that has very traditional symptoms of COVID-19 and they get one of these rapid antigen tests and it's negative, you still have to have a high index of suspicion that that person is potentially infected and they need to get a more sensitive test, a PCR-based test to truly rule it out. Um, So those are the two The two tests. The antigen test is actually really pretty good in people that have um, really low probability of disease. And so it's a really good screening test. So if you take somebody that the probability of them being infected is really low and you do an antigen test and it's negative, you lower it even more. Um, and so that's where I really see the utility of that antigen test, that rapid test is screening low risk populations. That's why we're using it in the universities and using it in some other, um, settings to, to screen asymptomatic people. But if you truly have somebody that is symptomatic and you think has disease and you get a negative antigen test, I'd be pretty wary of that and get a repeat, um, PCR based test.
0: Okay. Yeah. That seems to make sense. My in-laws recently went on a trip to Hawaii, right? And Mm -hmm. so they took a test, but they took took longer to get the results than they wanted. So by the time they got to the airport, they didn't have the results, but it sounds like based on what you're saying, they had this rapid test. It must've been an antigen test at the airport where they quickly swabbed their nose, said you're good to go, and then they flew off. Yeah, I actually had a friend
1: who that exact same thing happened. Um, And the airport is actually now offering rapid PCR tests um, in addition to the antigen test, because there's some differences, depends on where you go, whether you go to Hawaii or Alaska or other countries in terms of what they require. And some places are requiring a PCR-based test. That, and the reason is, is because it's more accurate. Yeah.
0: And because is that because it's more sensitive? I mean, is that exactly. what's like? Yep, accuracy? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about um, prevention. So masks are a big deal. They've been a big deal. And again, I think kind of the part around masks that makes us, I don't know, a little bit nervous is the fact that at the beginning of the pandemic, it was like, oh, masks do nothing. And then it was like, hey, everybody has to wear masks. Now with the yeah. vaccine coming out still wearing masks so take us through masks if you would what masks are effective yeah. what, what should we do?
1: Yeah so mask work period hard stop the science is clear um, and <clears throat> it works in two ways. One is that um, you know if you are infected um, asymptomatically let's say it prevents transmission of the virus from you into the community okay so it kind of stops that transmission. And that's the whole reason why the mask mandate went into place is that um, it prevented transmission in people that were asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. That was the whole point. In addition, um, what we didn't know initially is that um, masks actually prevent you from getting sick if you're healthy. Um, Even these cloth masks, it's putting a barrier in front of your face that prevents transmission of the virus to you. And so not only does it prevent transmission from an infected person, but also prevents getting infected um, if you're wearing a mask. And there's lots of studies now that have shown, you know, reduced transmission in states, in counties that implemented mask mandates compared to those that didn't. Um, It's just become very clear that masks prevent that. Not only that, um, this is the reason why we didn't see upper respiratory infections across the state of Utah. We can talk about influenza later, but, you know, Man, it sure was nice to go through a winter season with two small kids and not have any upper respiratory infections in the, in the house. I mean, we haven't had a cold in our house in a year and a half. And that's been really nice and that's due to the masks um, and social distancing and some of these other things. And so I just wanted masks work. You know, I think it was challenging um, early in the pandemic um, when we didn't know much. We didn't know a ton about the transmission um, and then we had, you know, some leaders come out that said, "No, we don't need to do masks." And and partly that was due to a supply issue, and um, that we wanted to divert, you know, our PPE or personal protective equipment to those that are in frontline healthcare workers and those types of things. And so um, it, it was unfortunate that people kind of grabbed onto that and said, "Well, they said we didn't have to do it initially." And as the science changed, as our availability changed, that message changed. And, you know, that was a contradictory message than previous. So that was an unfortunate kind of way that that played out. But I think we can clearly say masks are absolutely important for um, preventing transmission and keeping us healthy as well. Um, You know, we're going to be entering in a new phase here, right? So vaccinations are taking off over 80% of the people 70 years of age are over, are vaccinated. We're seeing those other age groups come up. And it's really, the question is gonna be, when do we stop masks, okay? And, and there's some really key things that we still have yet to answer. One is, you know, how well does the vaccine prevent a vaccinated individual from getting infected, potentially asymptomatically, and transmitting the virus? So that's one big area of study we really have to kind of understand. And the other issue is that, you know, this vaccine is an amazing vaccine. We couldn't have asked for anything better, but it's it's still 90 percent effective. Okay, so it still doesn't prevent all infections. And so when you have something like that, you know, that's when you start looking at alternative measures to augment that, which is masking. and so it's going to be an area that's going to be really kind of ripe for science to really dig in to say, okay, what's that threshold? And then, you know, I know that the public mandate is ending April 10th. I can tell you, I'm still going to be wearing a mask when I go into grocery stores and those types of things to prevent, you know, infection in myself and and just augment the prevention in the community. Um, and I hope others do too, for the time being, we still have, you know, significant rates of COVID-19 transmission. It's not like we've eliminated this. And until we get more of our community vaccinated, you know, I don't think I'm gonna feel comfortable taking that mask off, um, you know, for the foreseeable future. That may change come July um, when we have significant vaccination across the state. And I hope that that's the case.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. There's so many questions I have mm-hmm. coming off of this. So we'll try yeah. our best. Um, Are there, you mentioned the cloth masks, are there certain masks that scientifically are more effective at preventing everything? I mean, I've heard N95 masks, are those like the cream of the crop? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so, you know, N95 masks are, you know, the highest level of protection. Um, They are fit to an individual's face, you get tested to make sure that they're effective. Um, That being said, they can be relatively uncomfortable to wear. They're a thicker material, Um, they, you know, really suck to your face pretty well. And so wearing them all the time and wearing them effectively can be a bit challenging. But that's what we use in the hospital when we're caring for patients that um, potentially have um, an opportunity for, you know, airborne precautions. So people that are getting intubated, putting a breathing tube down, people that are undergoing procedures in their upper respiratory tract, really procedures that could really make that virus airborne. That's when we go to to N95 masks, Um, surgical masks, like the true hospital grade surgical masks are also really effective. They're well fitting and they really protect against these big respiratory droplets, which is what the virus is carried on. Um, And we actually care for our COVID-19 patients on the floor um, if they're not having these procedures with standard surgical masks and eye protection and and gowns and gloves. Um, As you get into the community, surgical masks are great because they're regulated they fit well um, they're comfortable um, and so those are really probably the best mask that you can wear but also a well-fitting cloth mask is actually very effective and so um, getting a mask that fits well and is snug to your face is probably the biggest thing we need to focus on you know I see plenty of people wearing masks that are dropping down over their nose or just super loose fitting you know those offer probably some protection, but not nearly as much as we'd like. So I think it really more is focusing on a well-fitting mask that is worn properly um, in the community is really kind of uh, the focus that we should have.
0: It's been, I mean, I'm in marketing. It's been interesting to see the corporate America version of that, right? Because surgical masks are pretty plain Jane. And then now we've got all these brand masks and it's almost like a fashion statement of what your mask looks like. It is a fashion
1: statement. (laughs) I wouldn't say it's almost.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, you also touched on the flu, right? And there's a graph and I'll put it up there for, for the people that are watching this in, in this case, but there's a graph where it shows the, the flu, right? Over at least flu hospitalizations over the years, and then this year it's essentially zero. So is that is that 100% attributable to the fact that people are wearing masks like that stopped the flu?
1: It's fascinating. Um, I would say not just flu, but RSV too. So RSV in children is essentially disappeared this year. Um, You know, there's a lot that probably is going into that epidemiologic kind of phenomenon. So one is that um, we have a vaccine for flu and it was pretty well uptake across the United States this year. So one is that we had some level of protection with an influenza vaccine. Influenza vaccine isn't perfect, um, but it does offer some level of, of protection. And we had a lot of people take the flu vaccine. Two is that um, typically flu comes into our you know, communities in November-ish, and it's generally brought in from the Southern Hemisphere. And so you've got people traveling from the Southern Hemisphere, where it's circulating, up into um, the U.S., and that's really kind of where and how influenza gets into the U.S. And this year, during that time, people weren't traveling. You know, we didn't have that influx of people from the Southern Hemisphere into the Northern Hemisphere. And then, you know, three is these really aggressive public health measures and was masking and social distancing and limiting your contacts and, and all of that. And, you know, I think taking all of that together is what led to, you know, our flu essentially dropping off and, and just, and RSV and just not seeing it. Not to mention that in kids that went to in-person school, Everybody was masked. Hand hygiene was a focus, and people were spaced out, and so um, that was like the perfect recipe for decreasing respiratory viral you know, illnesses, whether it be influenza, RSV. We also didn't see much of just regular, run-of-the-mill seasonal, you know, cold and flu viruses. So other seasonal coronaviruses, human metanumavirus, rhinovirus, just didn't see much of it, and. Um, likely all due to these public health measures that really impacted us. And, you know, the question is going to be, you know, even when coronavirus passes, and it becomes just kind of endemic in our community, it's just something we deal with, you know, do we take some of those measures and implement them in schools and hospitals going forward, because we know they work in preventing infections with these viruses. And um, it'll be interesting to see kind of where we go with that in terms of um you know protection of our of our children or inner workers
0: yeah i'm glad you bring up all those other uh, respiratory upper respiratory diseases as well because i think that that is kind of the conspiracy is like well it's just the flu rebranded right for those who haven't been mm. directly involved with it but it's not just the flu as you mentioned it's all of these upper respiratory illnesses that have kind of essentially <laughs> disappeared
1: yeah it's 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 incredible um You know, we've been tracking from a a viral standpoint, you know, the viral transmission, viral epidemiology across our state within the Intermountain, because that also influences how we test for other things. And um, it's fascinating to look at the graphs in terms of just the drop off of flu, RSV, and other
0: seasonal coronaviruses. And it's been really nice. No, That's great. Um, I want to talk, I want to spend most of our time moving forward on the vaccine, because that's the most I mean, recent thing going on right now, right? And I think that's the thing that we're trying to help people understand the best. So let's move into that if you're all right. And I think a misperception that I feel or have seen is that a vaccine is some sort of a cure, right? So if you're vaccinated, why do we have to wear masks? Why do we have to not hug people? Why can't we go back to normal once we're vaccinated? So maybe you take us through how the vaccine works first because I heard it's different than the past and the speed that it came to to be, and then what a vaccine really is for to clear that up for people.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, what an incredible show of science is this
0: vaccine.
1: I mean, it's just it's just fascinating. I mean, I don't think people can truly appreciate how remarkable this is. Um, you know, if you would have asked me last February, March, as we were preparing for what we knew was coming, if you'd asked me, hey, Eddie, do you think that you would receive a vaccine by the end of December? And I would have laughed in your face. Absolutely not. You know, this is just not feasible. Um, And we went from virus sequence in January to having vaccines in arms in December. And that's just absolutely incredible. And a lot of that we attribute and we have to give thanks to the federal government. They um, made this a focus with Operation Warp Speed. They, took away barriers for, um, public private partnerships. And they said, go as fast as you can, but don't skimp on safety. Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. And, um, you saw all these things happening in parallel, all moving forward together, um, relatively harmonized and synchronized. And you had really, really smart people in both the private industry, um, you know, whether it be Pfizer or Moderna, and then also the public sector with NIH and CDC all moving forward together. And um, we went from phase one, two, three incredibly quickly without, without compromising safety, which is just remarkable. And the, and the reason that we could do that is is that it was funded and it was funded aggressively. And so that took away the financial risk from the Pfizer's, from the Moderna's, from Johnson & Johnson, from those companies to be able to say, Okay, you know, we're going to start phase two even before we finish our first initial trials. Um, And so it's really remarkable. And that's the reason why now we have multiple different platforms of vaccines. Pfizer and Moderna is what we call a messenger RNA vaccine. Um, Johnson & Johnson is an adenoviral vector vaccine. Novavax is a purified protein vaccine. And we have more coming you know, AstraZeneca is another form of this adenoviral vector vaccine. What they all share is that they all are tricking the immune system to develop an antibody response to the spike protein of the virus. And so the virus is a standard coronavirus and on the outside are these little proteins called spike proteins. And that's what our immune system recognizes when we get infected with the traditional virus. And so what we're doing is we're making our immune system develop antibodies to a part of the virus. So then when we get infected, we can recognize it early and prevent disease. And that's the core of all of these viruses. They all use spike protein to develop an immune response. And so when we do get infected, we can clear the infection without getting getting ill. Um, And that's really how these all work. And there's differences in terms of RNA and adenovirus purified protein, and we can get into the nitty-gritty details if you want, but it's really trying to get your immune system to develop um, an immune response to the spike protein, and it's amazing how well it's worked, and we owe that a lot to the fact that that spike protein is pretty unique um, in science, and we can develop a great immune response to it, and when we develop an antibody response to it, it is effective in preventing infection, Um, and so the scientists picked right in terms of what to target and um, it's been really, really quite effective.
0: So with with the vaccine, you had mentioned how fast that it came, right? So what, 10, 11 months from when yep. January, we're starting to go into this and then December it's in people's hands. Mm-hmm. What is the typical timeline on a vaccine? You said it's super fast compared to what? Yeah,
1: 10, 15 years is the typical trajectory of a vaccine. If you look at like the hemo papillomavirus, Pneumovax, you know, other flu vaccines. um, You know, you're looking at 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 10-15 years. Partially is that, you know, these you know large companies really need to make a calculated estimate on um, their financial risk. Running phase three multinational studies with tens of thousands of people costs hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion dollars, and so companies that are saying, okay, we need to make a calculated risk whether or not to do a phase three study with our, you know, agent, they're making a risk to say, well, if we do this and it's negative, that's never going to get FDA approved. We're never going to come to market and we're out this incredible sum of money. Um, And so because of that, they're very, very calculated in terms of what moves, moves from phase one to phase two, phase two to phase three. And, um, you know, rightfully so, because it's a huge financial risk for them. And so it it just takes a lot longer. So instead of things moving forward all together at the same time, they're going in series, they're first going to do phase one, reevaluate and analyze, just go over all the data, and then make a decision on phase two. But if you take that barrier away, you can see how fast we can move.
0: Uh, yeah we had a we had a podcast episode that hasn't been released yet but with a pharmacist and so we were talking about why are drug costs going up yeah. up so fast and so high and i think that that's kind of to your point of these drunk companies have a lot of stuff they have to deal with and a lot of mm-hmm. costs to deal with but that's that's a whole other topic so you mentioned pfizer moderna johnson and johnson astrazeneca these four brands so if i'm going to go get my vaccine do I choose which brand I prefer? Does it make a difference? What, how does the common person go out there to get it?
1: The best vaccine is the vaccine you can get in your arm. Okay. You know, so at this point, it's whatever's available to you, take it. And the reason I say that is that, um, is that when you look at the effectiveness of the vaccine, it's, it's really hard to compare apples to apples, um, especially with kind of the rollout of these vaccines. Moderna and Pfizer, their Phase 3 study came out when we didn't have, you know, significant viral variant transmission. Johnson and Johnson's Phase 3 trial, multi, you know, national study came out with significant viral variants circulating. So it's really hard to compare these two. Um, you know, there is some benefits of Johnson and Johnson and the fact that it's one dose, um, and it's not a 2 dose series like Pfizer and Moderna is. Um, it's a little less kind of what we call reactogenic, um, you know, with Pfizer and Moderna, especially after that second dose, people get, you know, temporary side effects of kind of aches and pains and potentially fever that last, you know, 12 to 24 to 48 hours less. So with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, you know, that they all are exceptional vaccines in preventing severe disease, which is what we want, right? We need a vaccine that prevents people from getting hospitalized and dying from this infection. And both, or all the vaccines do that really, really well. Um, And so it really is whatever vaccine you can get. Um, If you think it's going to be hard for you to get a second dose, just timing wise, then go get the, see if you can get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which is not as good of a supply coming from the federal government as the others. Um, But in all honesty, I'm 100% comfortable recommending whatever vaccine you can get. Um, just as long as that you get it as directed, you know, so if you get the Pfizer vaccine, get that second dose three weeks later, if you get the Moderna vaccine, get that second dose four weeks later. Um, don't mix. you know, really shouldn't mix and match vaccines at all. Um, really just get them as, you know, as they're intended. Um, but really it's whatever vaccine you can get.
0: Yeah. And I mean, they recently opened it up to everybody, right? So at least my category, if I'm going mm-hmm. to schedule that, you not pushing a certain brand, but in the casual listener, in my mind, I'm like, okay, one dose, less symptoms. You used a word that I, I probably can't repeat, but could I target out and say, I want to go find a place that offers the Johnson and Johnson and then go get it there. You certainly could. Um, I wouldn't let that delay you from getting the vaccine
1: though. Okay. Um, you know, I think if you had the choice and you're know, like all things being equal, I can get any of these three on Thursday, for example, then, you know, Pick the one that you know fits you the best, um, but I wouldn't delay it. I wouldn't say, I'm going to wait two months and wait till there's more Johnson & Johnson, for example, in our community. I would get it. Um, we need everybody to get vaccinated to prevent the ability for transmission. Um, and so the more people we can get vaccinated, the quicker, the faster we can get back to kind of our new normal. Um, you know, we really need to drive down our community transmission. Um, And the way we do that is with vaccination and our public health measures.
0: Okay, yeah, maybe you can take me through this. This is, so when you're vaccinated, it's still probably beneficial to wear a mask to prevent transmission. So take me through, is a vaccine isn't a cure, it's not 100% like gonna stop everything. So how do we, how do we in our brains reconcile with the fact of, oh, I have the vaccine, but I still need to continue with the precautions.
1: So, you know, CDC has put out, some really good, I think, practical recommendations of what you can do when you're vaccinated, and the recommendations that we support. And so, if you're vaccinated, you can socialize, be in a home with another family that is also vaccinated. And so, if you have two families coming together, everybody has been vaccinated. Take those masks off, eat together. You essentially don't have you know any restrictions. Um, in when you're vaccinated, vaccinated, right? And so um, my wife's a physician, she's vaccinated. We have a number of friends that are in healthcare that are all vaccinated. And so we now feel comfortable getting together for you know a dinner and um, we haven't done that in a year. And so now that we're vaccinated, we are now socializing with our other vaccinated friends um, without masks um, and being inside. Um, CDC even goes as far to say you can do that if you're socializing with a low risk family. And so if there's a family, they're younger, they don't have medical conditions, they don't have elderly parents living with them, they're low risk, you know, you can also socialize with them without masks, without social distancing, okay? So um, it is getting to a point where, you know, you have to put in some thought about this, but like, if you're vaccinated and you have somebody else who's vaccinated, you know, get together and um, enjoy your time together and, and ditch the masks. Okay. Same thing with a low risk family. You can do that with the caveat that you know, even if that other family gets infected, they're low risk. Um, it doesn't change the fact that we still recommend that if you're vaccinated or not, that you still wear a mask when you go to the grocery store. If you're in areas that have lots of people that you can't socially distance from, that you still wear a mask. Um, one, it's, it's the cultural norm. It's the right thing to do. Okay, we're at a point where um, not everybody's vaccinated, so we need to continue to promote that masking is the right thing to do. Um, it also, you know, keeps other people safe in our communities. It allows businesses to stay open. Um, it's just, you know, the right thing to do at this point. And so, as more and more people get vaccinated, you're going to see the ability to socialize, you know, become even greater. And um, you know, that's one of the main reasons to get vaccinated is to kind of get back to of these things that really help us from a mental health standpoint.
0: Yeah, what is the data on how long the vaccine lasts and if it can prevent these other
1: strains coming in? Um, So let's break that into two in terms of how well the vaccine works against the variants and how long does the vaccine last. Um, You know, the studies that Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J did to get approval looked at a two-month follow-up, right? And so they have 90% efficacy at two months post second dose of the vaccine. And so all that study can say is that, you know, these vaccines were effective at 90%, 95%, whatever it was based on the study, two months after the second dose, right? They can't say anything about how long they last. But keep in mind that these studies, these 40,000 people that are in Pfizer, 30,000 in Moderna, 60,000 in J&J they last for two years. And so they're continuing to follow these cohorts of, of people out you know, for two years. And so we're going to get data from Pfizer, from Moderna, from JMJ, as these studies progress and give us new vaccine efficacy endpoints when the majority of people hit six months, when the majority of people hit nine months. And that actually just happened yesterday with Pfizer. Pfizer reported on their data in their study that, led them to get approval, that at six months, the efficacy of the vaccine is still 90% plus. Okay, so um, we will know more as time goes on. But I think at this point, what we can say is that, okay, two months look great. Six months now from data from yesterday looks equally as great. Um, And so this is gonna be an evolution. We're gonna to continue to follow science and then we're gonna to continue to integrate that into our public health message and how we communicate with our, with our communities. But right now we can say based on the Pfizer data, it's at least six months. And we're not seeing any wavering of that 90% efficacy. You know, So I suspect it's gonna be longer than six months, um, whether it be nine months, a year, two years, I think is yet to be determined. But that's why we have to keep following this, this science in terms of how long these things last. Um, but what we can say right now is six months looks great. Post second dose of the vaccine, likely gonna be longer than
0: that. Also, can you break down, so you said mentioned 90% efficacy. What, can you put that into context? What does that mean, six months, 90% efficacy?
1: So, you know, in, in the studies that they're looking at these things, there's a placebo group and then there's a vaccine group. Um, and they look at, in the placebo group, what's the rate of infection in that placebo group? And in the vaccine group, what is the rate of infection? And you are comparing those two groups to determine how effective the vaccine is. Um, And so if you've been vaccinated, you have a 90% chance less of getting infected compared to the placebo group. Um, So it's a very significant reduction in um, infections in that vaccine group. Um, And that's what we're looking at now. The other kind of big group of studies is um, what's called vaccine effectiveness. And so there's vaccine efficacy and vaccine effectiveness. Um, They sound the same, but they're pretty different. In fact, efficacy looks at clinical trial data. It looks at how well does this vaccine work in this really structured environment, close follow-up, everything of a clinical trial, right? That's vaccine efficacy. That's what Pfizer, Moderna, everybody's reporting what we're looking at is vaccine effectiveness is how well do these vaccines work in the real world in you and I that are not in a clinical trial. And so that's work that, you know, we are doing within Intermountain Healthcare to look at, you know, how well does this work in our community? And um, that's a different methodology, um, but it gets at estimates that are similar to efficacy, but you can do in a real world setting. And so, Those studies are going to give us answers to how long does it last? What happens if you only get one dose? Does it work better in certain populations? What about in people with significant comorbidities? What about in transplant patients? Those are all going to be answered in, um, in those types of studies. And, um, that'll be, you know, forthcoming. Um, and, you know, those are studies that will be, you know, coming in the next three to six months intermountain. We, we, anticipate looking at our first look at the data in those types of studies next week. And so we might be able to have some more information about that.
0: Wow, that's interesting. When you mentioned like clinical trials in the real world, for whatever reason, my mind goes, okay, they've been given a placebo, the other one's been given the vaccine, and then are they just put in a room with COVID? Like, what is, yeah. how did they just go out into the world? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So, you know, in those trials, they, you know, give a shot, could be placebo, it could be vaccine, and then they go about their lives right? They go about and they do the things they do, but there's scheduled check-ins for that group of people that are in the, in the trial. And so they have to check in at seven days, 14 days, 21 days, 36 days. And then um, there's a certain procedure in those people that are in the clinical trial that if they develop symptoms, that they get tested through a certified lab associated with that trial. And so it's a, it's a very regimented um, procedure for people that are in those trials. It sounds a lot better than what I had in my mind. So. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and then from the variant standpoint, um, that gets even more complicated. Um, and so there is the variant that was started in the UK. That's B one one seven variant. There's the variant that was initially found in South Africa. the B one three five one variant. There's the variant that is uh, identified in Brazil. The P one variant then there's the variants that are in California, the B1427 and 429 variant. And so there's all these variants and this is what viruses do. Like this is not a surprise to anybody in infectious disease or virology. This is just what viruses do is that they mutate and they develop mutations, especially when you have so much transmission going on in the world. And so we've anticipated that this was going to happen. Yeah. The biggest Variants that we have here in Utah and in the US is this UK initiated variant, the B117 variant, and these California variants, the 427 and 429. Um, those variants um, look to be more transmissible, meaning that it's easier for that virus to transmit in a community. And that just means that it takes lower dosages of the virus to cause somebody to be infected. And so um, it's just easier for people to get infected with those viruses than the traditional virus that we had initially. Um, the B117 variant looks to cause potentially more severe disease as well. And so it looks like it causes, you know, uh, an increased risk of, of severe disease. Um, not sure about the California variants. The good news is that based on the studies and the epidemiologic work that people have been doing is that, those variants appear to be well covered by the vaccine. And so, um, if you get vaccinated, you're going to be protected against those, be one of that, you know, UK and California variants effectively. And those are what's currently circulating in our community. It's less clear how effective our vaccines are against the South African variant and the Brazilian variant. Um, that is kind of yet to be determined especially about the P1 um, variant in Brazil. So at least here in the US right now and here in Utah, um, the vaccines we're offering appear to cover very, very well the variants that are currently circulating. Um, And so it truly is kind of a race of variants versus vaccines. And so if we can get more and more and more people vaccinated, that's gonna protect us from what we're seeing in the community right now. what is concerning is what's going on in brazil right now and people are like oh why are you worried about brazil it's a long ways away um but we know that i mean just look at what happened with the initiation of the pandemic we are such an interconnected world that what is happening in brazil could be happening to us next week because of travel and and our interconnectedness and so that does concern me um seeing the pandemic in india you know, getting worse concerns me as well in terms of what could be developing there. Um, those are things we, we really need to watch. But currently right now, the variants we're seeing are well covered by the vaccine. Um, that could get us, you know, a whole
0: discussion about booster shots
1: if you want to go there.
0: Well, that's, I, I'm amazed that you know all these variant names. Again, it's you're the expert, right? But it seems like these names of the variants don't even follow the same <laughs> nature either. So it's like one's a P, one's a B, one's a... Uh, yeah, that's that's crazy. But I think that is a fear that people have of with these variants, and especially if you want to go like, oh, there's there's this control over the populace, right? Of no matter what we do, there's always going to be something to keep us here. So maybe a timeline. Could you give us some sort of a timeline as what's realistic to expect of when things will be back to normal, even if we're all getting vaccinated? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, I think um we are in a really good spot right now in Utah um cases are coming down they've plateaued um vaccines are going up at a good pace hospitalizations are going down Our test positivity is going down um if we can continue these trends especially as we move from kind of late winter early spring into summer where more and more people are getting outside where the transmission is lower people are continuing to wear masks i think we're going to be in a much different spot than we were um, last year. And this summer could look very, very different and pretty close to normal in in my kind of perspective. Um, We have to watch what's happening in Michigan right now. I mean, Michigan has seen a really increased spike in cases likely due to just not people being not vaccinated. And so you're seeing a lot of cases in Michigan and that's gonna lead to more kind of public health restrictions. And so I think if we can stay the course um, over the next month, month and a half, I think we're going to be in a much better spot for the summer. I I really do, especially if we can get the vast majority of people in Utah vaccinated. um, That's really going to be what's going to kind of change the tide for us for the summer and into the fall. Um, You know, what I expect is that COVID-19 is going to be with us. It's not going anywhere. Um, we're going to learn how to manage it. We're going to learn how to, to do viral surveillance and then design potentially booster vaccines for variants that are in our community. And you know, it may get to a point where you know every winter, if there's a new variant, that we get a booster shot, just like we do with influenza, we get a booster shot for the new COVID nineteen or SARS CoV two variant. That's theoretical. Um, you know, if you look at how we do influenza vaccines, the reason we get influenza vaccine every year is because the virus changes. And so we're saying, okay, what happened in the Southern hemisphere, let's design our vaccine to make sure that we match that virus that's going to be coming into our communities in November and get people vaccinated. The same the, the same thing could happen with SARS-CoV-2 is that we are just matching our vaccine with the currently circulating variant um, and so I do think if we stay on this course, and that's a big if, right? If people continue to get vaccinated, continue to wear masks, continue to do those public health measures, if we continue to be on this course for another you know, month, a month and a half, we're looking at a, a great summer where we can like have those Christmas and Thanksgiving celebrations that we weren't able to have. We can have them now in June and July.
0: That's great. We have some myth questions I want to ask you. Yeah. They can be kind of rapid fire. And then I have... Yeah getting to know you questions okay Before we go there are they any are there any other questions that i haven't asked that i should have no I think,
1: I think the the focus needs to be on getting people out and getting people vaccinated as soon as i can and it's a safe it's an effective vaccine and um
0: we're we're ready to get people back to normal so let's get it done awesome okay let's take a couple myth questions here does yeah. that scene have a microchip in it it does not no <laughs> okay Um, one is around the number reporting on COVID deaths, right? So are COVID deaths, people who died because of COVID or they died having COVID, right? So the example is always somebody got in a car accident, they died clearly from the car accident, but then they were tested with COVID. Is that a COVID death or is that not?
1: That's a, that's a non COVID death. Um, to be deemed a COVID death, you have to die because of COVID. Um, and that's, you know, just based on when you fill out a death certificate, the primary cause of death is what led to the the death. And so if you were in a car accident and you suffered a traumatic brain injury and you happen to get tested for COVID-19 but you died of the traumatic brain injury, cause of death was due to trauma from a car accident. Um, So no, if you have to die, the primary cause has to be due to COVID-19.
0: Okay, perfect. That helps clear up a lot. Um, Are there financial incentives to treat somebody with COVID versus not? So first of all, I mean, we've gotten this question a lot is that, you know,
1: clinicians, one don't, wouldn't see those financial incentives. Yeah. So, you know, that that is not something that, you know, comes back to the clinician who's making the decision to test and to treat and to do those things. And so one, it's kind of a ridiculous question Um, that people keep bringing up because there's no incentive to the clinician to do that. Um, So that's one. Two is that um, there isn't any, you know, CARES Act funding was based on the Medicare population. It gives a little extra money to the hospitals because of the higher complexity of care that COVID patient has. Um, But it's still Medicare funding, which is well under the pay rate for traditional, you know, payers like, you know, the other kind of Traditional payers, insurance payers, and so there really isn't, um, you know, any any financial benefit to hospitals to be labeling people as COVID. Um, so yeah, the answer is no.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Part of this podcast too is the fact that we go through a bunch of different areas of healthcare. As I mentioned, we had a pharmacist yeah. on and CBD and all kinds of different things, but. It's amazing how siloed the healthcare system is, as you start talking about hospitals and physicians and insurance companies and PBMs and everything else. And so I think in general, that makes the system very complex and hard to understand. But at the same time, as I hear you say that, that silo between kind of hospital doctor does, in my mind, alleviate some of that financial incentives or I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's such a complex you know, environment right now that it needs to be separated and the clinicians need to take care of the patients. And when you start getting into value-based care payments versus traditional fee for service payments and the differences between the different insurers, it's so complex that the, the clinicians aren't looking at that. We have no idea. Um, and we shouldn't be, we should be taking care of the patient the best we can.
0: No, I can, I'm completely agree. What is what's <laughs> the problem? How do we treat it? So, yeah. Uh, real quick, we didn't mention, what about kids? So kids, do they need the vaccine? Can they transmit the disease? What What's the deal with kids in the age groups to kind of help? Yeah, them?
1: so um, kids absolutely can get infected. Um, they seem to get infected a little bit less, but that also may be the fact that kids are also much more likely to be fully asymptomatic, and so we may just be testing them less. Um, kids can get severe disease. Um, they can get you know, hospitalized from um, severe COVID-19, they can get this, you know, MISC c um, syndrome as well. Um, and so, you know, kids aren't, you know, immune to bad outcomes from COVID-19. Um, the vaccine trials for children are ongoing. And actually just yesterday, a lot happened yesterday. Um, Pfizer released their top line results in the kids between ages 12 and 15, this adolescent population. About 2,200 kids were in the trial here in US, and the vaccine was safe and 100% effective, getting a smaller trial, but they had 18 cases in the placebo group and zero in the vaccine group. They're looking to be getting um, EUA approval for um, vaccination of adolescents in the coming months, and we anticipate that that actually may come late summer, early fall. 100% 100% absolutely important to get kids vaccinated. Um, we need to make sure that it's safe and effective in the kids. And so that 12 to 15 group is probably gonna come next. Um, and then there's studies on going from six months to 12 years of age. Moderna's looking at this, Pfizer's looking at this, J&J's looking at this, AstraZeneca, they're all gonna be focused on these. Um, and that's gonna be the next group of, of um, people that get vaccinated. So yes, will be very important, especially to protect our schools, our teachers, um, and so the answer is yes, absolutely, more to come on it. But we hope that we can be vaccinating
0: kids by um, late summer fall. That's amazing. Yeah, because I was going to ask the ages, but if they're starting at six months, it sounds like you I mean infants, right, on up to yeah. on up to the, the teens. So, and that's a good important clarification I think that you made too, because again, there was a public figure in government who had mentioned like kids, you're safe, like don't worry about it, you do not need anything. But apparently, they may. I mean, fortunately, I mean, this would have been a very, very different pandemic
1: if our kids were getting severely ill, mm-hmm. right? Um, and fortunately, that certainly wasn't the case. And um, I don't want to downplay it, the effect on children. Um, but thank goodness that we yeah. didn't have really bad
0: severe disease in kids early on. Yeah. All right. Three getting to know you questions. These are random. So Yeah. we'll we'll wrap it up with this, if that's okay. And then appreciate your time so far. So number one, what would a world populated by clones of you be like?
1: Huh? Very anal, (laughs) very, very attention to detail. Um, and they're probably not very funny.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is the best it's April Fool's. So what is the best or worst practical joke that you've played on someone or that was played on you? Um, probably best one
1: that's played on me is that, um, I had a roommate in med school, um, who somehow I had a very small ish car, um, got a bunch of friends and picked up my car and, and moved it to a different location. Um, and I lived in you know, downtown St. Louis. And so I immediately thought my car was stolen. Um, so that's probably the best. One.
0: Nice. Last, last one here. If you could only say one word for the rest of your life, what word would you pick? Uh, sandwich. I love sandwiches. Oh, that's awesome. Eddie, thank you you for your time. This has been great. I appreciate it. Hopefully our listeners appreciate it. And then regardless of where people stand on this issue, our frontline healthcare workers have had such a crazy year. So thank you to you, to them, to everybody that's been on top of this and getting us into a place where we can get back to normal and be safe. Uh, I I really appreciate your time. So thank you. Hey, Thanks so much for having me. Okay. See you. See you later.